Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales Canberra campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. On the 2nd of August 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. This resulted in a brutal six-month-long Iraqi occupation of that country. In response to this aggression by Saddam Hussein, the United States under President George H.W. Bush marshaled an international force sanctioned by the United Nations to put pressure on Iraq to withdraw. This was known as Operation Desert Shield, but ultimately it led to military action to eject Iraqi forces in Operation Desert Storm, also known as the 1991 Gulf War. Royal Australian Navy was involved in both operations. The Navy had not operated in the Arabian Gulf since World War II, but these operations presaged the longest involvement by the RAN in that theatre of operations. An RAN ship is still in the Middle East, as we record this episode now in 2020. This is the second of four episodes dealing with the RAN in the Middle East since 1990. And in this episode, we pick up the story from the point where the initial RAN task group of Darwin, Adelaide and Success was on station at the entrance of the Arabian Gulf. The second task group, comprising Brisbane and Sydney, were now en route. To discuss these operations, I'm joined by a distinguished panel. They are Vice Admiral Rush Shoulders, who as a captain was commanding officer of the frigate HMAS Darwin, which took part in Operation Desert Storm. He later went on to be the Vice Chief of the Defence Force from 2002 to 2005, and then Chief of the Navy from 2005 to 2008. Rear Admiral Chris Oxenvold, who was a Commodore, was commander of the RAN Task Group in Operation Desert Storm. He was later promoted to Rear Admiral and served in a number of positions, including Deputy Chief of Navy and Maritime Commander, retiring in 1999. Vice Admiral Chris Ritchie, who was a captain, commanded the destroyer HMAS Brisbane during Operation Desert Storm. He later went on as a Vice Admiral to be Commander of Australian Theatre and was Chief of Navy during the Iraq War. He retired in 2005. And finally, Dr. David Stevens from the Australian War Memorial. He is an author on the official history project writing up Australian operations in Iraq, Afghanistan and East Timor, and he's also a member of the Naval Studies Group. During his former naval career, David was on Commodore Oxenbold's staff during Operation Desert Storm and was with the RAN Task Group as a naval historian during the 2003 Iraq War. Thank you all for joining me once again. There are shoulders if we may return to you. The task group handover took place on the 3rd of December in the Gulf of Oman, uh, and success obviously was going to stay on until the other tanker, Australia, arrived in the new year. What lessons were you able to pass over to the new task group? We'd been talking to the, um, the new task group and passing back uh, information to them throughout our deployment. Um, but by the time that uh, they were on their way towards us, it was very evident that the uh, that there was a new phase beginning, that the situation would, would no longer be quite the same as it had been for us. In particular, on the 29th of November, just before we left the, the AO to rendezvous with the incoming task group, uh, on the 29th of November, a, a new Security Council resolution uh, had been uh, announced, which established a deadline of the 15th of January the following year for Iraq to leave uh, Kuwait. So it was very obvious that, um, that things were about to change. Um, trade, the Iraqi trade had really dried up by that stage. There'd been nothing uh, attempting to come into the Gulf 
or at, or from the Gulf um, uh, after late October. Um, it was evident, uh, I th I'm sure, that uh, Brisbane and Sydney had uh, practised and listened to the, the boarding activities, or, or the lessons that we'd learned getting ourselves to where we were in terms of boarding. Uh, and I'm sure they did during their workup uh, a lot of the things that, that we'd not been able to do uh, during ours um, in relation to boardings. And in fact, that did become evident um, shortly thereafter when Sydney conducted a couple of very complex boardings uh, in late December, uh, which were copybook as far as I understand, and perhaps uh, others may comment on that later. It was very clear that the second task group would have a very different uh, role in the future. And that became even clearer the day after a handover uh, on the 4th of December when approval was given to the second task group to operate actually in the Gulf of, uh, in the Arabian Gulf. We'd not been permitted to go north of a certain line, um, but on the 4th of December, uh, approval was granted by the Australian authorities for the second task group to actually operate in the Gulf. So things were obviously going to be different. Um, we were happy to hand over, we were happy to leave, but uh, I think we'd uh, been able to pass on everything that, that we'd learnt uh, as a second task group uh, took on their, their very important role. So Chris Oxenbold, as Russ has just talked about, by the 3rd of December, the, the campaign is evolving, the political and diplomatic situation's evolving and the role of the task group's evolving. In amongst all of this, what instructions did you actually receive from the Maritime Commander, Rear Admiral Ken Doolan, before you deployed? Thanks, Rob. Uh, as has just been mentioned, uh, when I joined Maritime Headquarters, the broader, broader strategic issues regarding Australia's reaction in the event of hostilities and expanding the area of operations were very fluid and they were being considered at the most senior levels of defence and, and government. I did spend a couple of weeks in the headquarters and which provided a good opportunity to observe operations from that end and see what was expected from the task group by Admiral Doolan. He uh, provided and issued an operational instruction which reflected the situation as it was then. Uh, the ships were to be brought to the operational level of capability and we were to integrate with the coalition forces to conduct approved tasks, and there was a defined area of operations. The circumstances were changing quickly, and in expectation of the new United Nations resolution, which, as Russ mentioned, came out on the 29th, was issued on the 29th of November. And the instruction was amended to reflect these changes as they occurred. This process provided the government with control through the Maritime Commander while leaving some flexibility for the commander at the scene, the task group commander. Ken Doolan uh, was a very engaged commander, which was good. He visited the ships in the west before we departed Australia and in the Gulf shortly after we arrived in the area of operations. And on both occasions, he spent some time at sea to observe how we were performing. These were good opportunities to discuss uh, any issues uh, at an early stage. And from these interactions, it was clear to me that his requirements were the ships were to operate strictly within the limits of his instruction. He wanted to be kept well informed and he didn't want any surprises. We exchanged personal messages quite frequently. And I recall we only had to revert to a telephone call on one occasion 
and that was an administrative matter late in the deployment. Overall, I thought the command and control worked well. Uh, I, can, I also consider that these arrangements were as good or better than any other uh, or any of the other multinational force commanders that I spoke with in the Gulf. So, Chris, following on from that question, we had good functional command and control arrangements within the task group and back to Australia, but what coalition arrangements did you find when you arrived and how did you then go about engaging with US High Command in theatre? Well, when we arrived in the area, the loose association arrangements, which uh, David Stevens has just described, were, were in place for the multinational interception forces. Uh, and they were coordinated through the monthly meetings um, of the participating navies. Rear Admiral William Fogarty was the US commander of the Middle East forces, and additionally, he was the commander of the multinational interception force, the MIF. And as David mentioned, the ships were participating uh, under national command and national rules of engagement, and there was no formal transfer of tactical or operational control to the MIF commander. And this worked well for the boarding operations or was able to be made to work for the boarding operations, but more was going to be needed for the coming hostilities. As part of the handover with Don Chalmers, we both uh, flew out to the USS Midway and met with the uh, US Battle Group Commander, Rear Admiral Dan March. And I also flew to Bahrain and called on Vice Admiral Stan Arthur, who was the US 7th Fleet Commander and had been appointed as the Commander of the US Naval Forces Central Command. In other words, he was General Schwarzkopf's uh, naval component commander. And I also met with Rear Admiral Fogarty and other local-based US and multinational commanders. I had worked closely with the 7th Fleet in recent years and used to attend major planning meetings twice a year. So I knew how that fleet worked in the USS Blue Ridge and also knew some of the current staff. A week later, I had a second opportunity to talk with these senior USN officers when accompanying Rear Admiral Doolan on his calls. As experienced throughout my naval career, the, the senior USN commanders were very welcoming and generous with their time and the briefings that they provided, and we were well received. Admiral Arthur, in particular, was very engaging offering his door as always being open and emphasising that the US forces didn't have a mortgage on all the smart ideas. We had some modest but good news for the USN. They were short of escorts and the Chief of Defence Force, General Gratian, had only a few days before directed Admiral Doolan to prepare for the possible future maritime operations against Iraqi forces. And this level of commitment was well received. Ongoing engagement with Admiral Arthur was assisted by an RAN liaison officer on his staff, initially Commander Tony Flint and later Commander Les Pataki. However, we did lack a discreet means of communications and had to facilitate occasional meetings. Unfortunately, this was not always possible when needed. 
I used to meet with Admiral Dan March in Midway every two to three weeks with Commander Mark Bonson, my plans officer, and Mark occasionally attended other planning meetings in the Carrier. There was also a plethora of large warfare instructions that were frequently reissued or updated and clogged the message system. We were kept very well informed. David Stevens, as we're approaching the commencement of the 1991 war, there was a high-profile boarding just prior, wasn't there, involving uh, Sydney and the peace ship Ibn Khaldun. What happened there? Yeah, well, the... um Ibn Khaldun was a, a Libyan-sponsored attempt uh, to embarrass the multinational forces uh, and obviously supported by Baghdad. Um, it had been loaded with food and medicine and uh, sailed from Aden with uh, 250, sorry, 240 women, children and journalists embarked. So it was a, certainly not a secret mission. It was a, um, a well-broadcast one. And the uh, Baghdad radio, for example, had said that there was um, women from 10 Arab countries on board and other countries, including Italy, China, the US and Japan. So quite an international contingent. And it was dubbed the peace ship because it was trying to bring, um, uh, call it humanitarian supplies, medical supplies and, and um, food to the Iraqi people uh, and break the blockade. Um, Sydney was uh, ordered to join the intercept on Christmas Day. Uh, in 1990, and she had to make a, a high-speed passage out of the Gulf and down the coast of Oman to rendezvous with a number of American and British warships. Now, Sydney was tasked as the lead intercept and challenge unit, and she tracked um, Ibn Khaldun overnight, then closed to within a few hundred metres at first light on the 26th of December, Boxing Day, with uh, Ibn Khaldun refusing to answer the challenges, as was a standard tactic that we already heard, um, the ship had to be stopped by parties of uh, US Marines who were inserted uh, fast rope from helicopter to stop the ship. And of course, the, um, uh, these teams immediately faced the, um, the, the passengers on board who were trying to be disruptive and several of them tried to uh, take the, Mar the Marines' weapons from them, and one of the Marines was knocked over. And uh, fortunately, the professionalism of, the of those teams meant that no one was actually injured, although the um, Iraqi uh, shipmaster at the time claimed that uh, two of the women had suffered miscarriages and um, two had had heart attacks. But then when he was offered uh, the, uh, the chance for medical evacuation, the problems disappeared. The, um, once the Marines had taken control, uh, other boarding teams from the British ships and from Sydney um, came on board by the uh, rigid hulled inflatable boats. Now, um, control was established, the searches were carried out, the ship was found to be carrying 800 tonnes of sugar, and the Maritime Interception Force afterwards retained the vessel in custody um, whilst they found a port to unload the goods. So all in all, it didn't really have the effect that uh, certainly the Libyans and or the um, uh, Iraqi regime had intended. Chris Oxenbold, President Bush had set a deadline of 16 January for Iraq to withdraw from Kuwait. Now, as that deadline approached, how did the duties of the RN task group evolve? Well, as we've heard, the countdown triggered by the United Nations Resolution 678 uh, had commenced a few days before Brisbane and Sydney entered the area. 
and we had been directed to prepare for hostilities and the task group's focus shifted from intercept operations to preparation for combat. Though, as we've just heard, Sydney had a prominent role in two boardings around Christmas when the USN was keen to have an international mix in the forces involved in those boardings. Admiral Arthur has stated that the two primary missions of the naval forces were supporting the air campaign and convincing Saddam Hussein that the Allies intended to launch an amphibious assault on his eastern flank. The, the role of Brisbane and Sydney would be to protect the aircraft carriers as they played their part in the air campaign and success and later West Australia would provide logistic support for all coalition forces. As David has mentioned, the coalition used the three to four months of Desert Shield to build up a massive force in the theatre to match the Iraqis. And the outcome was that we had two large formidable forces, the coalition and the Iraqi forces, who were expected to be pitted against each other in a major conflict. The immediate task for our task group was to gain geographical familiarisation in the Arabian Gulf and the, for the warfare teams, particularly in Brisbane and Sydney, and to integrate into what was a very sophisticated, multi-layered air warfare setup. The, the air picture was complex and covered an enormous area, stretching from the Eastern Mediterranean and the Red Sea across the Arabian Peninsula to cover all of the Arabian Gulf and beyond. And there were inputs into this picture that were provided by intelligence, signals reconnaissance aircraft, AWACS, the Airborne Warning and Combat System aircraft, both land-based and carrier-based, and ships' radars with combat systems such as Aegis. All these systems combined to produce an extraordinary picture, and it was linked to the air defence units which were capable of receiving it that included Brisbane and Sydney. We conducted in-chop briefings uh, with the principal warfare officers and in the early stages, the link picture was quite fragile uh, with some strange anomalies. One such involved Brisbane's link, which appeared to cause HMS Gloucester's combat system to freeze and shut down. Once identified, this was promptly rectified virtually overnight with a signalled repair patch from the RAN's Combat Data System Centre in Canberra. And this quick response really did impress our coalition partners. The point being, though, that with such a sophisticated or even with such sophisticated and capable systems, time was needed to get the communications right and to integrate the individual units into this multi-layered air warfare picture to make it ready for war. In the end, it was very impressive, but still not perfect. On the 9th of January, the monthly uh, MIF coordination meeting was held in Dubai, and Australia was the host, and it was convened in success. 11 countries were represented, and Rear Admiral Fogarty, plus three planners from Rear Admiral March's staff, represented the United States Navy. The US officers briefed us on their intentions for carrier operations in the Arabian Gulf, and all nations who were able 
were requested to pass tactical control of their units on the 13th of January to CTF-154, who was Admiral Dan March in the Midway and now titled the Battle Force Zulu Commander. There was a separate Battle Force Yankee in the Red Sea. Tactical control was all that was required by Dan March and after seeking Admiral Doolan's approval, control of Brisbane, Sydney and success was passed to CTF-154. The escorts were assigned sectors in the carrier's close screen. Success joined the logistic forces that were being controlled by a Canadian Commodore and screened by Canadian ships and some other multinational units. Dutch escorts also joined the carrier's close screen on the designated date and Italian ships joined sometime later. The British escorts were in the tactical loop and part of the air picture, but they were stationed as pickets in the north and retained the ability to operate independently as part of the larger Royal Naval National Force. Chris Ritchie, what are your memories of that period? And noting Chris Oxenbold's description of the complexity of the air picture at the time, can you also comment about the air threat, but also the threat from Iraqi mines? Yeah, certainly, Rob. Um, first, though, I'd like to talk a little bit about that first night when the war commenced because, to me, nothing else that happened in the Gulf before or after, indeed, nothing else that ever happened in my naval career can really match the significance uh, or the emotion of that night of 16th, 17th of January. And just to describe how we got there, you know, tension had been building for a week. Um, we'd moved to our war station, which was in the northern anti-air warfare screen for the carriers Midway and Ranger. Uh, the UN deadline was approaching. Uh, Iraqi forces were not withdrawing from Kuwait. The deadline came, the deadline passed, and nothing happened. But throughout that particular day, evidence really did start to build that there was an impending Allied strike, and we certainly all considered that there was the possibility of a preemptive Iraqi strike. So tension is quite high. By about 2100 on the evening of the 16th, uh, we knew for certain that a strike by Allied forces was on. And a couple of hours later, uh, the threat levels were raised in the force. And in the early hours of the 17th of January, just quite suddenly, uh, the radar screens in the night sky over the Gulf just blossomed, filled with missiles and aircraft uh, heading northwest into Iraq. Now, we obviously went to action stations and we're there in the midst of this massive strike against Iraq. We, what did we feel? We felt, we felt relief that the waiting, you know, was finally finished. We were elated that the Allied force had been able to strike first, but clearly there was also some trepidation that we've done it now. You know, we, we really are at war. But significantly, a great cheer went up throughout the ship, and you could hear it in all parts of the ship. A great cheer went up. Uh, and then we settled down to await the expected retaliation. It didn't come then, um, and it never really did come at all. But we, we didn't know that then, uh, and it was some weeks before we could be sure that uh, we were reasonably safe from Iraqi air threat. In the first weeks, it, it was indeed the air threat that was our primary concern. The Iraqis had some 750 combat aircraft, uh, many of them were capable of carrying Exocet, silkworm, air-to-service missiles. 
there were alarms in those first uh, first week in particular when Iraqi aircraft were seen to launch uh, head towards the Gulf, but inevitably they were shot down by uh, combat air patrol or they just turned around and returned to base. Much later in the war, HMS um, Gloucester, the ship that we'd been guilty of taking down his combat system, uh, gained bragging rights when he actually uh, shot down a software, something that everybody else in the Gulf would have loved to have been able to claim. There was another period of concern when Iraqi aircraft were seen to fly uh, in great numbers to fields in Iran and no one knew whether they were defecting, whether they were flying into Iran to prepare for a, a different sort of attack. Nobody knew exactly why this had happened. And the Zagros Mountains, which come down the eastern side of the Gulf, uh, would have provided excellent cover for those aircraft to uh, intercept the Allied force with very little warning. So both Sydney and Sydney um, spent some time uh, within sort of reasonable distance of the Iranian coast as what we call the Zagros Gate Guard. Uh, it remains the fact, though, that much of Iraqi's air force, uh, much of Iraq's air force, remained in being throughout the war. So there was always the possibility that it could be used as things got more desperate uh, for the Iraqi leadership, but it never was. Iraq also had... Uh, OSA-class uh, missile patrol boats armed with six missiles, but the Iraqi surface forces really played little part um, before they were completely destroyed by the Allied forces. The mine threat was ever-present, and it remained so after the ceasefire on 28 February. The Iraqis had laid moored uh, and ground mines uh, in fields protecting Kuwaiti and Iraqi ports, and in the latter part of the war, indeed, uh, both USS Tripoli and USS Princeton, uh, with an arrow so of each other, uh, fell foul of those mines. Of greater concern to us uh, were the moored mines, which had been released as free floaters in the currents of the Gulf, and that required constant vigilance you know, using literally just the Mark I eyeball uh, and the electro-optical surveillance system, which we particularly relied on at night time. A lot of time was spent in investigating mine-like contacts, which generally proved to be rubbish and floating objects of all kinds. We had one spectacular success in, success in blowing up a particularly stubborn floating refrigerator. So it went everywhere. It's noteworthy, though, that after the ceasefire, Brisbane escorted supply ships into the North Arabian Gulf, and on one occasion we narrowly avoided unseen mines along the overnight track We'd been proceeding uh, westwards, uh, sorry, eastwards overnight. Uh, at dawn, we turned and retraced the track to the west, uh, and then the mines became visible. They'd clearly been there during the night. Um, we hadn't seen them. So our confidence in the electro-optical system went down a little bit after that. But mines were always a threat. Chris Oxenbold, given this mine threat, part of your task group, of course, included uh, Clearance Diving Team 3. In a previous podcast episode on clearance diving, we've covered some of their work, but briefly, can you tell us what they were there to do? Uh, my appreciation of what happened is, is slightly different from the earlier podcast. Uh, I was brought into this decision loop quite late and was surprised by the proposed deployment. Initially, I asked that it be deferred, but was told that that was too late to happen. This occurred at the end of January, uh, and the drifting and moored mines had emerged as the greatest remaining threat. But there was little that a 23-man clearance diving team could do alone to reduce the threat to the Australian ships. 
Lieutenant Commander John Griffiths and his team with 50 tonnes of equipment embarked in West Australia at Muscat briefly before shifting to Bahrain. Attempts were made to integrate the team with the British Mine Countermeasure Force, but the Royal Navy was unable to assist. The Canadians were, however, and they were able to provide us with some secure facilities for the team in Bahrain. There was some expectation that there might be a role in the amphibious landing to provide some very shallow mine and obstacle mine clearance and obstacle clearance. But what was discussed was extremely dangerous and never likely to be approved. Although the US Marines were keen to conduct an amphibious landing, the preparations of, uh, for an assault of Kuwait City were unlikely to have been anything more than an overt feint. Some, in particular, some of the vital preliminary operations that were needed, notably mine clearance, had not been completed and that couldn't, they could never meet the time frame uh, for the amphibious assault. A landing on Failaka Island off the Kuwaiti coast was more likely, but proved unnecessary after the rapid capitulation of the Iraqi forces during the ground offensive. At Bahrain, CDT-3 was employed in establishing a degaussing range and training with US forces but it was a frustrating period of waiting for the team. But in March, CDT-3 came into its own with the clearance of the Kuwaiti ports. And this was dangerous work and a tough task. They had to clear and render mines safe, dispose of ordnance and delouse booby traps. It was conducted in atrocious conditions. There was a great deal of oil in the water the atmosphere was mixed with smoke, oil and dust and referred to as smoid and there were occasional human bodies in the water and around the places they were working. They worked with the British and US teams and were later joined by some French divers and at times they also worked by themselves. CDT3 did a lion's share of the clearance task and were highly commended by the US commanders. In the end, they completed most of the tasks that were envisaged by the government prior to their employment, but it was a, an uneasy start. Chris Oxenbold, to you again, can you comment then from your perspective on the progress of the naval campaign in Desert Storm through to completion? Yes. Chris Ritchie has covered a good deal from Brisbane's experience. In reflecting more broadly on, on the progress of the naval campaign where the Australian units were involved, I think it had four distinct phases. The first phase was the lead up to the 16th of January deadline. It was a tense period, and especially the closer we got to the date. The ships were exercising as part of the USN battle group's schedule of exercise to maintain their high state of readiness while also refining their ability to participate and contribute to the air picture. There was a real expectation and some intelligence that Iraq might conduct a preemptive strike before the deadline. Advanced pickets were stationed in the north of the Gulf and there were several feints by Iraqi aircraft over the Gulf heading towards the carrier's operating areas. 
These caused the air warning to be raised, and on one occasion a USN ship requested but was denied permission to engage. Brisbane and Sydney joined the screen around the carrier operating area on the 12th of January, and at that time success joined the logistics ships. The second phase was the deadline, uh, which came and went with no action from either side. Chris Ritchie has provided most of the details as he recounted the surreal type of experience. What he failed to mention was that 16th of January is his birthday. And I recall we celebrated with a cheese plate after dinner while waiting for the attacks to be launched. Even more surreal. The coalition forces were primed to strike. A second carrier, USS Ranger, entered the Gulf and joined the formation on the 15th of January. As Chris mentioned, late on the 16th of January, we received a warning from Rear Admiral March, and a few hours later, early on the 17th, the first Tomahawk missiles were launched against Iraq, and these were followed by land and carrier-based airstrikes. The third phase followed the initial attack and lasted until the end of January. It was our busiest period. The coalition executed a systematic strike plan that destroyed the Iraqis' command and control and communication systems, rendering the Iraqi commanders blind and unable to direct their forces. Uncontested air superiority was established and the Iraqi Navy was effectively destroyed. About 100 Iraqi combat aircraft fled to Iran and at least 12 naval vessels also attempted to flee but were sunk or disabled. There was only one attempted strike by Iraq against the carrier force. On the 24th of January, two F-1 aircraft armed with Exocet missiles, escorted by three MiG-23s, approached in a high-low attack profile. The two F-1s were shot down by a Saudi F-15 on patrol, while two other groups of fighters were setting up to engage. The MiG-23s fled to the north. It was an impressive display of the effectiveness of the air screen. An attack on the carriers was not repeated, but as Chris mentioned, silkworm missiles were carried or were fired at some of the ships in the north. A third carrier, Theodore Roosevelt, joined the Arabian Gulf Force on the 20th of January. Success was extended in the area for a few days and departed on the 23rd of January. Brisbane and Sydney remained part of the inner screen around the three carriers with the occasional task to escort logistic ships to the northern pickets. Australia and the CDT-3 arrived in the Gulf at the end of the month. The final phase lasted through February and became routine with a diminishing threat. The airstrikes continued, preparing the battlefield for the ground offensive. The carrier operating areas were twice stepped up the Gulf closer to the targets. And a fourth carrier, USS America, joined Battle Force Zulu on the 14th of February, and this allowed Midway to conduct some flight deck repairs. A 10-ship amphibious force moved to the north of the Gulf, threatening an amphibious assault. Brisbane and Sydney were assigned tasks controlling aircraft, and Sydney spent a few days as a combat search and rescue vessel further north. 
and Brisbane was primed to conduct gunfire support. The major threat was the floating mine and delayed minefields close to Kuwait. The US ships Tripoli and Princeton were both mined and severely damaged on the 18th of February, and Sydney was only about 20 miles away from Princeton at the time. The one concerning aspect was that despite the relentless pattern of air and missile strikes, intelligence did not indicate a significant reduction in the capability of the Iraqi ground forces. The US forces were getting short of smart weapons, and this placed pressure on General Schwarzkopf to launch the land offensive. When he did, the risk was still considered high, and the complete and rapid collapse of the Iraqi land forces in less than 100 hours was not expected. Finally, can I ask each of you for your concluding thoughts on the RN's involvement in the first Gulf War, and in particular, any thoughts you might have as to its legacy? Ross Shoulders, let's begin with you. Yeah, I think it demonstrated that we had an ability to deploy quickly uh, and to sustain operations at great distance. That's something we'd not done for, for a long time. The readiness of our ships, uh, the ability to uh, top up or improve that readiness through the, the, the abilities that the sea training group brought to both task groups and the ability to set up and then maintain logistic support at a very long distance uh, was something that we'd not done before and we proved it to ourselves. Secondly, I think that uh, the reliability and combat effectiveness of our ships uh, was proven to us. That um, was a long time ago and, of course, we have much more capability now, but at the time, um, both task groups were very effective. Uh, ship defects were few over a long period of time. The weapons that we had were very appropriate and I'd make the point that the helicopters uh, embarked uh, in both task groups were fundamental to everything we did during that deployment. And we were able to operate uh, very easily with the other members of the coalition. So uh, we proved to ourselves that we could do the job. Finally, and I'm sure everybody else will say the same thing, but I think um, the first Gulf War deployments proved that the calibre and professionalism of our people uh, was really second to none. They deployed at very short notice. They operated in complex and very uncertain uh, scenarios. They had to work in very arduous environmental conditions, very long periods at high readiness. Um, our people adapted and overcame the difficulties in front of them. I think we all thought that we were pretty good. We didn't quite realise how good we really were. Uh, our people were really, I think, a hallmark of, um, of what occurred back during the first Gulf War. Chris Oxenbold, how about from you? Well, once again, uh, in our history, Australian forces were provided at the tactical level by use for use by Allied commanders. By any measure, I think that the Australian Defence Forces' involvement and the RAN's in particular was a success. And I share Russ's uh, view of the quality of the, of the uh, people and the way they responded. The RAN's inter integration with the USN forces was smooth, effective, and I think achieved with little fuss. Although modest in size, the, the contribution was appreciated by the USN commanders. To put it in perspective, when, when Brisbane and Sydney joined Midway in mid-January, the carrier had only two US escorts in its close screen. 
A battle group in this situation would normally have about six. The other USN escorts were used as pickets or on other roles that were required in the restricted and complex Gulf scenario. The number of the USN escorts uh, in the screen built when the other carriers arrived, but so did the protection task. As looking at a legacy, as an important legacy, I think was the, the broader experience the defence. All from the Prime Minister to the most junior seamen were put through a significant test. And periodically, this is healthy for any organisation. For the ships, they had to achieve a very high level of capability for virtually all facets of warfare, anti-submarine warfare being the only exception. This was demanding, it was satisfying, and it was good for the fleet as a whole. I think the bar for operational performance was lifted and a lot was learned. More, more generally, I think the raft of changes that had been introduced to defence in the past 18 years since Vietnam mostly proved successful. And this provided confidence to continue the evolution of defence's operational planning and the execution of those operations. Chris Ritchie, some concluding thoughts? Uh, yes, I certainly endorse all the points made by Russ and Chris. And, and to follow on from those themes, I think the first Gulf War and our continued involvement in the Middle East have shaped the culture of the Navy for the past 30 years. I think that's a, that's a real legacy. The way we operate at sea, the way we dress at sea, the routines at sea, our preparedness, we have been an operational Navy since late 1990 with higher standards of performance and readiness than we had in those 20 years post-Vietnam leading up to 1990. I think that additionally there might be what, what you could call a, a strategic legacy and that probably almost culminates in our involvement in the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the consequences of that particular decision. As you mentioned in your introduction, Rob, after the first Gulf War, we have never really left the Middle East. More broadly, across defence, the 1980s doctrine of fitted for but not, not with has largely disappeared. And so too, I think, is the idea that warning time can be measured in years. We still have our problems, but the ADF today is in much better shape than it was pre-1990. And I like to think that the first Gulf War was the catalyst for the evolutionary change in thinking that has led to that improvement. Thanks. And finally, David Stevens. Yeah, I don't think there's much more I could add um, to those comments, but certainly having interviewed uh, many officers whose careers span this period, I can certainly tell you that most of them regard the uh, first Gulf War as certainly a turning point for the Navy and certainly for them. And of course, many of the junior officers who served in 1990-91 subsequently uh, came back many times. Uh, in various um, you know, higher ranks and uh, positions of command. So it's certainly been a, a major influence on the REN and um, the first Gulf War certainly set the tone for what happened later. And as you said at the, um, at the beginning of the presentation, as the podcast, is that we're still there today. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for. And my sincere thanks to Chris Oxenbold, Chris Ritchie, Rush Shoulders and David Stevens. 
In another episode, we will continue the story of the REN in the Gulf with another panel of experts, and they'll discuss the eventful operations of the Multinational Maritime Interception Task Force, which was designed to maintain the United Nations Security Council sanctions against Iraq. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you all for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group in your search engine. Goodbye for now.